Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. On this show, I'm speaking with Michael Kimmel, Distinguished Professor of Sociology and Gender Studies at Stony Brook University. He is also Executive Director of the Center for the Study of Men and Masculinities. His book, Angry White Men, American Masculinity at the End of an Era, published by Nation Books, is a topic of this show. Kimmel has written an engaging and eye-opening book about the lives and attitudes of white men who are expressing rage and feelings of aggrieved entitlement in a new age of gender relations. In the vast social, economic, and political changes, women have gained increased equality in the home and the workplace, while straight white men have experienced a sense of loss. Having worked hard and fulfilled what they view as the requirements of masculinity, men now find that the economic rewards are slow in coming. Kimmel has spent hundreds of hours talking with men from different economics and social stations who blame women, blacks, and gays for their trouble. With a sympathetic ear, he examines the social construction of men's rage expressed in politicized, anti-immigrant, anti-gay, and racist sentiments claimed by right-wing media. Feeling that the system is now stacked against them, we are seeing outbreaks of mass murder by young men at schools and workplaces, men's rights activism which seeks to restore male privilege and stolen father rights to extreme cases of battering and murder of women. Through the political mobilization of the extreme right seen in the Tea Party, neo-Nazi and religious fundamentalism, men are expressing despair over the perceived loss of status. White supremacist groups are also drawing a growing number of women who are embracing old models of gender relations and the slogan of taking our country back. Yet the beginning of the end of patriarchy, Kimmel argues, is also a start of a better life for men. Gender and racial equality are good for white men and their children. What is needed is not only to turn down the volume of white male rage, but also to empower men to embrace a new definition of manhood that frees them from a sense of entitlement and opens up for them an egalitarian future. Here is my conversation with Michael Kimmel. Let me introduce you to the author, Michael Kimmel. Hello, Michael. Hi. Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. You have done extensive research on the attitudes of men and masculinity in your career. But before we get into your current book, tell us a little about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Angry White Men. Well, uh, my background is I have a Ph.D. in sociology, and I have done research um, for years on gender, social movements, um, and I've done some work in the past uh, on uh, extremist um, movements. and. But this this book, I think, uh, I, I did a history of masculinity some years ago. Um, I wrote a, a bestseller about young men, 16 to 26. 
But I, this book really hap, uh, came about because I began to notice uh, a, a very loud um, and sometimes virtual uh, rage being expressed by white men in America um, and um, who are arguably, I mean, outside of the hereditary aristocracy in medieval Europe, uh, white men in America are probably the luckiest men on the face of the earth. Um, they have more privileges than, uh, than any group. Um, you know, the entire world sort of tilts toward them, and yet they were furious, and so I couldn't quite figure this out. So I went, and uh, so I, um, I took as a, as a spark plug, so to speak, I took as a originating idea an experience that I had had on a, a, a TV talk show in the, um, uh, you know, some, about 10 years ago now. And, um, I was, I was on the TV show opposite four, uh, four men, white men who were themselves, they said, the victims of reverse discrimination the victims of, you know, uh, of uh, affirmative action, because they believe that affirmative action was really reverse discrimination against white men. And so, um, and, and I was on opposite them to sort of respond to them. And the reason that this was really a trigger for me was the title of that particular show was a quote from one of these men. And the quote was, a black woman stole my job. So I asked the men, uh, I asked the men, why, what, I want to ask you a question about the word my. Where did you get the idea it was your job? Why isn't it the, a black woman got the job or a black woman got a job? Because without confronting men's sense of entitlement, I don't think we'll ever understand why so many men are so angry. So I began to think about that idea of entitlement and the aggrieved entitlement that I heard from so many white men um, that uh, that they were losing, that they were losing uh, to women, that they were losing to minorities, that everybody else was was winning and they were losing, um, and that and that any effort uh, that equality was a complete zero sum game. So if if minorities were going to win, white people were going to lose, and um, and so this is what I began to chart in the book, and I, I focused on several different groups of of white men who expressed what I came to call aggrieved entitlement. So one of them was, you know, uh, angry white boys, uh, school shooters. Another was, um, uh, you know, uh, men's rights groups, especially the vitriolic ones on the, on the Internet, or uh, father rights groups, or guys who go postal in the workplace. They go walk in and they start shooting their own colleagues and coworkers and supervisors. Um and then I, and I focused, of course, on men who murder women and violence against women. But, and finally, I focused on the extreme right wing, uh, um, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, because they're clearly angry white men. Now, what I did not focus on, this is a book that came out last year. If I were publishing it today, there would be a whole chapter on Donald Trump and angry white men, because that's the Tea Party, right? I mean, that's what they're saying. We have to take our country back. They have taken it from us. And so you, that's what angry white men sound like. We have lost something, and we have got to take it back. Let me ask you a question about this. What age group are we talking about? Because it's been 50 years. In the last 50 years, this change has been happening in terms of women and minorities getting more rights and more privileges and access to the workplace. So you would think a lot of these people you're talking about, if they're under 40, 
30, they were, they grew up uh, competing uh, with women and girls and seeing women and taking positions. It seems like it, it, I, I could understand it if they were 60, 70 years old. But how, yeah. do, how do you explain that? Because it seems like there's a lag, like a cultural lag there, because it's been going on for a long time. Sure, but uh, but think of it in terms of generations. Um, and I'll, let's go back 50 years. Um, 50 years ago, uh, my father's world looked like Don Draper's. Uh, he, you know, he had the office with the window. Um, the, the, the women were gathered in the center like a corral called the secretarial pool. And access to them was kind of a workplace perk. So, so for them, that was what they expected. Now, my generation, I'm a baby boomer, my generation, um, we expected our world to look like Don Draper's, although it looks nothing like it. My son, who is 16, has no sex ex- expectations at all. So it is in the age between my son, who's 16, and me, baby boomer, or, you know, early 60s. So what I think, where I think this anger is concentrated, to be honest, is men in their early 40s to early 50s. They're the men who still believe that they were entitled to all this stuff. My son doesn't believe that stuff. You, you know, um, 20 year old guys who are in college today don't believe that stuff. The men's rights groups and the, you know, the, the, the extreme right wingers, they have no cachet on campuses. You know, the men's rights guys try to come on campus and everybody looks at them like, what are you nuts? You know, you know, we, we, girls are our friends. They're equal. They, they, they can do anything. So, so, um, I think it's the guys just at the very tail end, Gen X men, who believed that the world was going to be for them, just like their baby boomer dads, but it wasn't. And they're the ones who feel hardest done by. Now, that's a generational view, but there's also a class-based view. This is not all men. This is only those men who have lost, they feel, something um, and they're downwardly mobile. So when I interviewed, for example, the, the, the white supremacists and white nationalists in the United States, um, I found that most of them, if not all of them, were downwardly mobile lower middle class. Their fathers owned a small farm that had been in the family for generations. They lost the, and they had to foreclose. Their father and mother owned a mon store, but they had to close it when Walmart moved in. Um, their fathers were, you know, sort of, uh, Smith and Sons. These, they were, these, the, the guys I'm talking to, they were the sons. And Smith and Sons went out of business. Um, so these guys, um, expected to inherit something from their, from their fathers and they didn't get it. I was wondering when I was reading your book how much women sort of, you don't talk much about women except as victims of these men. Um, mm. how much women play into this because women also have, expectations of men that still kind of lag, you know, women uh, may accomplish a lot, but then they expect to marry up. They expect their men to do better, be providers. And so how much do women actually feed this by putting up on men expectations that really no longer are realistic? Yeah, Lillian, that's a, that's a, 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 a class and, and a class and generational thing also. The women that you're talking about, the ones who expect a more traditional man and to be breadwinners themselves, et cetera, those, those women are, uh, are, are, uh, middle class women in their thirties and forties. 
Uh, they're the, they're the partners of these angry white men. Um, you know, most of the women, uh, the surveys seem to suggest that most women fully are fully comfortable with earning as much as their husbands or more. Most women expect to balance work and family. Most women expect their husbands to be involved with the, with housework and childcare. So, so the, the women that we're talk that you're talking about now are a very specific slice. And I think that very often, especially when you listen to, you know, Trump supporters and all, they think they speak for everyone, but they don't come close to speaking for everyone. It's interesting that you brought up Donald Trump because that was one of my questions I was going to ask later because it seems to me after I was reading your book and then I'm, I'm looking at Donald Trump, he's all over the news, and I'm thinking, well, he is the, you know, the representative of all of these guys. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that is the hallmark of angry white men is this sense of victimhood. Um, this idea that you are the victim, that the state has done this to you, the government has taken away things from you, given it to other people, this idea of victimhood. And you can listen to every one of these guys when they're speaking, and you can hear that, you know, Donald Trump, one of America's richest guys, okay, he didn't make it all himself, he got it from his father, but still, um, he's, he's one of the most privileged human beings ever to walk on the planet, and he acts like he's a victim. Oh, the media is constantly attacking me. Ted Cruz says the same thing. You know, these guys are upper class guys and they act like they're, 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 they're working class guys who've been, you know, badly done by, by feckless bosses. I mean, it's truly insane, right? But, but Donald Trump and his followers all claim the mantle of victimhood. So if you say to me, you know, uh, well, as a woman, uh, you know, we have been discriminated against. I say, well, I'm discriminated against, too, so that's a wash, right? I'm discriminated against as a white person. They've taken everything from me. I'm the real victim here. And that is the language that they all use. And he's also saying, I'm not going to take, we're not going to take it anymore. America's not going to take it anymore. And what it really stands in for, white men are not going to take it anymore. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> he says, he says, we're not going to take it anymore. But, um, I mean, that is, you know, I mean, it's that's Peter Finch, you know, that, that, that's Peter Finch in network. You know, that's really the line that is most, you know, and, and, and it's interesting, you know, it's like, it's like when I, when I told the, asked those guys on the TV show, you know, what do you mean by my in a black woman stole my job? You ask the same question to Trump. You say, we have to take our country back. And I'm thinking, what do you mean our? Like, when did, when did it become yours? You know, you can't have it. Sorry. You know, we're a very different country than the one you fantasize about from the 1950s. So let's get let's get back to see what you said about these these men, these men that you describe. I think we we kind of know what you're talking about. But how does it manifest itself? What are some specific things that you're that you're seeing in terms of what you talk about men's rights movement? I thought was really interesting because I thought that was kind of dead and gone. But I guess it's not. Well, it's. Let me, let me be, let me give you a context. I tried to map these men who are these, these angry white men, but I think the, the, that even though we are going through a, a period today of, you know, what seems to be dramatic reversal, um, there is no way that this is the future. This is the past sort of trying to reassert itself. So I regard these angry white men as a declining breed. The next generation will have far fewer of them 
because they are far more comfortable with equality, with interpersonal friendships, with women, with minorities. Um, they are not nearly as persuaded, even though we're living at a moment right at this very instant of tremendous fear uh, of, uh, of terrorism, uh, of invasion. Um, most Americans think it's, you know, it, it's not only insane and unconstitutional, but utterly unpatriotic to think of ourselves as trying to purge ourselves of all these undesirables. Um, so, so, so let me, so the, the first thing I want to say to the context of what I'm saying is that this is a declining voice, very loud, but declining in numbers and will continue to decline in numbers. Now, having said that, um, the men's rights movement was a very big deal, uh, in the seventies and, and, and early eighties. Um, and then they kind of disappeared. Um, and then there was the mythopoetic men's movement. You may remember Robert Bly going off to the woods and chanting and drumming and all that. But, but by and large, um, the, the, that was that sort of replaced it. But men's rights have now reasserted themselves as an internet presence. There's um, a massive amount of what you know of trolling by uh, by men's rights guys who um, or who are spend a lot of time you know going after feminist women or feminist uh, feminist supporting men or you know and yelling at them and and, and so so I think they have a very large internet presence but I don't think that they're all that numerous um, uh, th- but they are very loud um, because they feel uh, the internet has given them a virtual community. Um, so much of their conversations is with each other about how much they hate feminists or how much, you know, things have, have, have you know, things bother them. And also, isn't a lot of this uh, have to do with parenting and children? It's a, a battle for children. Well, uh, that's, I think this is a political issue that is really important to understand. Um, there is a, a father rights movement. And the father rights movement has some validity to it, I believe. Um A lot of fathers today who are losing the father rights movement is really a movement about shared custody, the presumption of the presumption of joint custody as the as the kind of baseline from which custody decisions should be made. And a lot of these guys um, feel and I think they're right that they have been more involved in their children's lives than previous generations. A guy who's getting divorced today, odds are he is are more connected to his child than than his grandfather was. But he's treated in court as if he were his grandfather. He's treated in court as if he were Don Draper. He's treated in court as if he were an absentee landlord at home. And he's saying, I put in all this time, I've been an equal parent, and now you're pretending that, like, you know, I've never seen my kid, and the only thing I, my only organ of nurturing is my wallet. That's not true. That's not fair. Now, these guys have a point, and it seems to me that if we don't acknowledge that some of these guys are right. Now, I'll give you a different context in a moment. But unless we acknowledge that some of these guys do have a, a valid point and that they fe- what they feel that they've, been, that they've been treated badly, that in many cases they have, unless we deal with that, the men's rights groups are going to c- try and colonize them. Do you think the, the men's, men's rights groups... Is the men's rights group a, a more radical... Oh, much. More radicals. So I'm saying saying that the the father rights groups are are mobilized around fatherhood. The men's rights groups have a much wider canvas, a much bigger net, but they are very eager 
to to bring into their fold the angry fathers to try to say, and you see, the, your fatherhood thing is only one thing, but it's also employment and it's politics and it's everything else. So, so my feeling is that unless we acknowledge these the, the legitimacy of some of these fathers' feelings, the men's rights groups will colonize them, and that will that their anger will then fuel some of the men's rights anger. Now, there is one, one bit of, of, of data, though, that is important here. I say that many of these guys do have a point, that they have been better fathers and more involved. But I want to be clear that it's also the case that 80% of divorcing Americans get the custody arrangements that they want. Both. 80% total. Now, so we're only talking about 20%. And in that 20%, we're only talking about the half of that 20%, about 10%, where the husband wants joint custody and the wife wants sole custody. And that is the, that is the, 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 the part that we're talking about here. We're not talking about all arrangements. We're talking about just those. So I think it's important that we also have that bit of data as well. Most people get the custody arrangements they want. Now, let's talk about the economics of this. Is economics, and I think you kind of mentioned that when you're talking about uh, businesses, family businesses that go out of business, uh, how much is economic pressure uh, at the moment right now uh, driving this anger? Because people just, uh, they got to well, blame somebody, you know? So you're like, you blame, you blame women, you blame blacks, you blame immigrants. It's right. I, I do think that that economics is is something that drives that's driving some of this. I I felt an enormous amount of empathy toward many of the uh, white nationalists uh, that I met, for example, the white supremacists, because in in many ways they feel that they've been completely screwed, and in some respects they have. But what I said to them is, you know, you're right to be angry. You have been badly done by, but I don't think it was minorities who are the cause of climate change. I don't think it is immigrants who, you know, um, who have offered you predatory loans. I think they're just as likely to be victims. I don't think feminists downsized and outsourced your jobs. So I believe you're right to be angry, but you're delivering your mail to the wrong address. You know, you've, you, we should, you should be angry, but not at those people. They've been badly done by also. So my feeling is, that that um, that we need to 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 recognize the legitimacy of their anger, but contextualize it in a very very different way. Um, and economics is in fact driving this. We're talking about the people who have been tossed to the side of the road by the by the by as as the rest of the the country, the rich are are you know sailing down the you know the the global superhighway, and this is the leftovers. And these people have been cast aside, and they're right to be angry. But let's not be angry at the other people who've been cast off. Let's be angry at the, pe- at the, at the very, very few who are doing so very, very well. Okay, let's talk about uh, the targeting of, of women. You have a whole chapter on that, and I think you're talking about, you're talking about violence against women. And specifically... Not like crimes of passion, of immediate passion. We're talking here of of you, women or, or you, you specific woman. You will have the cause of my misery in a kind of a long, broader context. Yeah. Well, 
One of the things that I try to do in the book is I start uh, each chapter with some really sort of very extreme um, events. And then I move to more general and more general and more general sorts of, of things to sort of paint a bigger and bigger enlarging picture. So I start that chapter with two events that are very familiar to a lot of people, Elliot Roger and Santa Barbara, who went on a rampage and said that, you know, that women, he, you know, he was a, he was really cool and clean and, you know, he was very sexy and he should be getting dates, but he's not getting dates. And then I talked about a guy named George Sodini in, in Pennsylvania, who also um, one day walked into an aerobics class and murdered, uh, you know, a number of women with an automatic weapon and then killed himself. And he left a and, and, and he left a, um, a, a, a suicide note in which he says, you know, look at me. I'm really good looking. I take care of myself. I have a good job. I haven't had a date in, you know, in three years. I haven't gotten laid in five years. You know, it's, you know, it, uh, um, you know, I don't know. I, I And you women, you know, I don't know what you want, but, you know, you're you're the problem. You're at fault. So, so this, these guys feel themselves to have been rejected by women, and then they feel themselves to have been rejected by women total, like all women, and it's all women's fault, certainly not mine. Um, so they decide that they're going to go on a rampage against women. So, so I start by talking about these very extreme cases, but I try to make the case that there, that is also an, an example of that aggrieved entitlement. I'm entitled as a man to women's bodies. Wait, wait, let me finish. I'm entitled to, to women's bodies. I'm entitled to have sex when I want to. I'm entitled to have women defer to me. And when they don't do it, I blame all women. How much is this also, uh, you know, socially fermented? A society, society's playing into this by, you know, we the sexual uh, objectification of women. If women are sexual objects, they seem to be so readily available in the media. They're there. Their bodies are there for display and for taking. That it seems to me that if these men get this idea, uh, the broader society has given it to them. Uh, well, uh, there's a lot of messages we get from the larger society. And I, I think it's easy. You know, I think they have certainly gotten this um, for a long time. We have been a culture that says, you know, I don't get mad, I get even. It's part of masculinity. See, what I try to do is I try to link it not to those that, you know, society, but I try to link it specifically to the ideology of masculinity. You know, the ideology of masculinity that says, if I have a disagreement with you, I draw a line in the sand and then I dare you to step over it. I don't get mad, I get even. You know, I want vengeance. I don't want justice. And that, uh, it seems to me, or that vengeance is justice, so to speak. I, that I think is what um, is what is fueling a lot of this. Um, is that is that sense that this is tied up with the idea of masculinity? So when women reject me, it's that I feel emasculated. I feel like I've lost something. This is really crucial. The men who I'm talking about believe that what they need to do is. Um, is retrieve their sense of manhood. It's been taken from them. Now, how has a masculinity, let's talk about this, actually been redefined, or how is it evolving? Uh, they seem to be holding on to a definition of masculinity that you're saying is, you know, going away. Uh, what is, what's, what's it evolving into? What is it that we want to bring these men into in terms of how they view their masculinity? 
I, I don't think I get the question yet. Well, the, the, uh, what I'm saying is they seem to have a very specific idea of what it means to be a man. Sure. But the, what it means to be a man is changing. Right. Under their feet. What is yeah. It, what is it involving into? What are we? What is the new masculinity look like? How is it different from the well, masculinity the, they're holding on to? Well, um, I think for a long time, uh, the story that we social scientists told about about men was that they ha- they were holding on to a very traditional idea of masculinity, uh, and at the same time, their lives were diverging a lot from it, so that they were. Um, they were doing things that would have been unrecognizable to their grandfathers, but they were holding on to the ideology that their grandfathers had had. And that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. It seems to be more true that the ideology of masculinity has begun to change somewhat, not dramatically. And it's not like something has replaced something else. It's not like we were once, you know, Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger or something. And now we're all like Ryan Gosling or Alan Alda. That's not the case. What What is the case is that the ideology of masculinity has expanded enough so that in, so that men can feel like it is okay for them to be emotionally responsive, to be good listeners, to be sensitive, to be nurturing parents. This is the most important change among, among American men is it is no shame on your masculinity to be loving and affectionate and nurturing and taking care of kids and doing, you know, changing diapers and all that stuff that we always thought was like women's work. And that has really been a colossal change. So it's, but it's not like, you know, men being nurturing dads has replaced being Schwarzenegger. It's just, they're, they, they, they coexist. Right. It, yes. It's the same thing happens with women. I think that there's two images going on at the same time. Uh, yeah. Competing, competing ideas. Now, you're talking about an anger here that's very out in the open, very tangible. You've seen it. You've heard it. I'm wondering if there is a more subtle form of anger that is going through the culture against particularly women, because that seems what I'm interested in right now, uh, particularly when you're talking about college campuses and college campuses being hostile, uh, sexual hostile environments for women in terms of assault and rape and, you know, frat boys and that sort of thing. And what we've heard coming from uh, college uh, co-eds about the the hostility on college campuses, which could, you could say it's a more subtle, uh, maybe more even acceptable form of, of anger or expression of hostility towards women. Because, you know, boys will be boys. And mm-hmm. Do you see those are things that's connected at all? Do you think that this, uh, these guys that you're talking about is connected to a a larger uh, misogyny in the culture. Well, yeah, I'm, I mean, I would, I would also say um, it's, it's connected to that sense of entitlement, right? I would also say that it's connected to that sense that you know, um, I'm not, I don't really want to be too graphic, but like you know, I want sex and I'm going to get it, and you simply are the way I'm going to get it, and if it's not you, I'll do it to somebody else, and you know, I'm getting laid. Period. You know, and don't try to stop me. Um, I'm entitled. And, you know, I think a lot of the alcohol stuff is simply a cover for this. Um, I think it's a, it's a rationalization. Uh, after all, when you're so blind drunk, you don't attack your boss. Um, you know, you, you know, you, you, you pick your targets. You don't attack a football player, no matter how drunk you are. 
You know, I mean, you know, you still pick your targets. Um, so I think it's a cover. I think the truth is that men, men are taught by other guys on college campuses that you, you know, girls exist for your, for, for you to have sex with. And, you know, and part of your initiation is we're going to give you tips on how to, how to basically get, get over on girls. And then you're going to follow these tips and you'll be successful. And, but, but, but in this, in the way I've just described it to you, and this is really important, women are a currency in the relations between men. I want to enhance my status with my bros. And the way that I do that is I score with lots of girls. So the girls are inconsequential individually, existentially. I don't care about them. All I care about is getting enough points with my guy friends. And what's interesting about these young men, particularly on these uh, Ivy League co- uh, campuses, they are the elite. They're probably going to have very good jobs. They're not necessarily going to be suffering from, uh, you know, having to compete with women or minorities. They're going to they're, they're going to come out just fine. They come from prestigious places, most of them. So this uh, this attitude, it seems to me, is coming from just blatant misogyny. Well, I think it's, you know, I think they live in a world in which they believe that, you know, in which they have two things. They believe that they live in an adversarial culture in which women and men are, it's a war between the sexes. It's Mars versus Venus. And if you win, I lose. And if I win, you lose. On the other hand, they also are developing cross-sex friendships, the likes of which their parents and grandparents would never have been able to understand. So I think that, 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 that those friendships may in fact have some bearing eventually on some of their predatory behavior. But here's what I think is going to happen. Here's my prediction. These guys that we're describing as the elite, the guys who are going to, you know, take over the world, et cetera, they're going to go out, they're going to take over the world, and then they're going to become dads. And many of them are going to have daughters. And I, I guarantee you, you want to see a, a guy become a feminist overnight? You talk to a man whose daughter hits puberty because he is going to say to you, oh, my God, there are boys out there who are looking at my little girl the way I was taught to look at women. This is really bad. In fact, The Onion satirized this recently. They had a headline that said Eminem furious that his daughter is dating someone raised on Eminem's music. Right. It's like Eminem finally decided to look at his own lyrics. And this is, I think, this is really crucial. I was recently at one of these very prestigious colleges. So this is a story that I think is really indicative. I don't talk about it in the book, but I think it's indicative of how to reach guys. So I was at a very prestigious college talking to uh, seven or eight guys who were in the same fraternity. And we were talking about the party scene and hookup culture and all of that. And they were saying, oh, my God, our parties are so awesome. And everybody gets completely drunk. Then we all hook up. It's so fantastic. And then one guy stops and he says, you know, I don't think I'd let my daughter go here. And I thought, wow, that's a really interesting comment. So basically what you're saying is you wouldn't let your daughter date you. Now, what does that mean? And what I realized it meant was he was no longer thinking like a guy. He was thinking like a dad. And when guys think like dads, they may, in fact, see the women in their lives quite differently. Because that girl that they're about to be predatory with is somebody else's daughter, is somebody else's friend, is somebody else's sister. Um, I think that guys already are in relationships with women that they love 
and that they care about, like their moms, like their sisters, like their girlfriends, like their, um, you know, uh, 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 like their daughters. And those relationships are where I think that kind of change starts. All I have to do is say, I know what it's like to love women and want them to succeed. Look at how I feel about my sister, my mom, my, my girlfriend, my, my friends. All I've got to do is transfer that to the girl standing next to her. Right. And also, uh, fathers want their best for their daughters in terms of jobs and careers. They want, they don't want their daughters limited in what kind of jobs they're going to get. That's right. Second, second instant feminist. Talk to an older man whose daughter is facing discrimination in the workplace. Right. Oh my God. This is terrible. You know, I'm going to change. I'm the CEO. I'm going to change it now. So why, I didn't is, see so, it before. So why is feminism still such a, a, an ugly word for people? Because we've had a relentless campaign for 60 years to try to discredit feminism into some caricature of women who are ugly, gay, hairy, uh, and furious. I mean, and, I, I meet, I, I meet women every day who will say, I'm not a feminist, but if you listen to them, you know, they're not going to put up with anything their mothers put up with. Of course not. I mean, you know, look, if, if, if you took, if you took the 10, the top 10 feminist, you know, reforms that are, that are, you know, that have been offered in the 20th and 21st century, you know, most women and most men would agree with them. Women aren't going to give up the right to work. They're not going to give up the right to vote, the right to serve on juries, the right to, to drive a car, the right to have orgasms. I mean, women are going to keep those rights, right? I mean, we're not going backwards. You know, so, so I think that, uh, you know, so, so what I hear from my students, now my students are 18, 19 years old, and they say to me, feminism was your generation's issue. And you know what? And, and we're so grateful because we won. Thank you so much. We can do anything we want. We can drink men under the table. We can have as much random sex as any guy. We can get any job we want. We can do anything we want. We're completely, you know, we're completely liberated. Thank you so much. And then they graduate and they come back five years later and they say, oh, my God, you were so right because I didn't. What 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 happened to me in my job? So college age women are very often, you know, it, it, they, they really do feel they can do anything they want. Right. Until I always say when they when they hit the motherhood wall is when they when they realize how, how much they're at a disadvantage. Whether That's right. They, whether they don't want to have children or they want to have children. Either way, they're they're in a, a, a bind. It's a, it's a lose lose. And then their you know, so their supervisor hits on them or they realize that the guy that was hired the same week is getting paid more or, you know, or anything where they experience you know harassment on the street or in the subway or, in the, you know. Uh, or, or they, or they have to pay, or they end up in a used car lot paying more for a car than a guy does. I mean, there's all kinds of things about this. So yes, they, they, they experience the discrimination finally, and then they realize, you know, when I was in college, it seemed pretty equal. And they were right about that. I mean, look, tell me another place in the United States that's more gender equal than the American college classroom, right? But outside of that classroom, it's quite an, a different story. Now, uh, we're going to have a few minutes here to wrap it up, but I was wondering about what do we what do we do as a society to address this uh, these this male anger that you're taught that you talk about in your book, and and now we're seeing embodied in uh, Trump, and he's articulating a lot of the grievances that they have. Mm-hmm. Is there anything? Is there anything that? Is there anything takeaway for the for the listener? 
on a day day basis of how to deal with that? Sure. Um, I, I I think uh, I think it's it's less um, uh, less strategic uh, and effective to be normative. You should do this. You should do that. Than it is to be descriptive. The truth is, men are already doing it. The truth is, men are far more involved with their families than they've ever been. They're doing far more childcare and housework than they ever have. They're far more egalitarian in their relationships. They're far more egalitarian in their friendships. You know, I mean, 25 years ago, it was like Harry met Sally. Women and men couldn't be friends. Now, my students are all, every one of them has a good cross-sex friend. So it seems to me that instead of saying men should do this or should do that or shouldn't do this or shouldn't do that, we ought to take a look at what men are actually doing and prepare them better for the kind of lives that they're actually going to live. Because if you ask young men, you know, what's more, what's important to you, they will say being a, being a really involved dad, being, you know, having a great marriage and way below that, you know, making tons of money. So what men say is important to them. We should listen. We should listen to them rather than tell them what to do. I think that they, you know, they already know it. Now, what, what they need from us is a massive amount of support for that, you know, for the changes that are already happening, because what they're getting is a lot of, of, you know, sort of resistance and support for repudiating it from their peers and from the media, right? So their families, their churches, their schools, those are all telling them, you know, telling them you're, you're on the right track, being more egalitarian, being, you know, being more responsive. And then their peers are saying, bro, that's so gay, right? So what we have to do is we have to get, we have to empower these guys to support each other. I can't tell you how many times I've heard men in workplaces say, oh yeah, well, I was going to take parental leave because my, my company offers it. But, you know, but then my colleagues, my male colleagues said, oh, I guess you're not committed to your career, huh? Or, you know, we'll put you on the daddy track, but you'll never make partner. So these guys didn't do it. Why? Because other men undermined them. So the two things that I think are needed, we have to li- learn how to challenge men. Other men have to learn to challenge other men when they see these kinds of behaviors, when they see predatory behavior. We have to, you know, empower bystanders and we have to learn how to support each other when we're making the kind of changes that we say we want to make in the first place. Well, Michael, I have one final question for you. What are you working on now? Uh, I'm taking the uh, the last chapter of Angry White Men about the neo-Nazis and white supremacists, and I'm taking it global. And I'm, in, and I'm working uh, on, on how you get guys out of the radical movement. Uh, and I'm looking at a group... Um, uh, I'm, I'm looking at four different groups, a group in Sweden, a group in Germany a group of ex-jihadists in London and, uh, and a, a group in the U.S. Um, who are all working to, to, to get guys out of the, out of the uh, extremist politics. Wonderful. Thank you, Michael, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. I would enjoy hearing from you. Please drop me a line at newbooks.gender at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.